You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Good morning, church. How you doing? So I've noticed a problem here at the church. I'm just going to address it because it's huge. You are left side heavy. I don't know what it is about the left side, but you, I'm leaning every time I'm over there. I'm like, what is going on? These right siders are great people. They are not bad people. You can sit by them. I encourage that greatly. Sorry, I just couldn't help myself. Um, my name is Simon. I am one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you. Glad you came to worship with us. Um, we had a lot of fun yesterday bowling. It turns out that, uh, you know, it wasn't as friendly. There's a lot of competition yesterday. Uh, I'm not going to say who got the highest score for the day, but let's just say he's standing on a stage right now. Um, <laughs> by one point. Boom! It doesn't matter. It's one or a hundred. I still won. I'm so derailed right now. Um, so we are, we've been going through the book of James. We're well over half done at this point. And I was thinking about this section, and I, it, it took me back to when I first went into ministry. So when I first went into ministry, I was a blue-collar guy. I worked heating, air conditioning, scientific laboratory equipment on the industrial side. That's what I did. And then God called me to, to be a pastor. And so I did that. We sold our home. We moved to the high desert from the Bay Area. And um, we were like, we're going to buy a big house because no one lives out in the desert and the houses are cheap. And we were really excited to do that. And um, as we moved into a small apartment in the interim, as we were looking for a home, what ended up happening was we were just like going and visiting all these houses. And I remember in the process of that couple of months, I ran into a guy at the church and everyone was new to me. I didn't know anybody. And he's like, hey, uh, welcome to the church. We're glad you're here. What are your plans? Are you going to buy? Are you going to rent? I said, well, we're renting right now. He's like, oh, that's really good. You should just keep renting. I'm like, well, we want to buy. And we're looking at houses like, oh, let me just tell you something, Simon. He's like, I study the market. I know what's happening with real estate. We are about to have one of the largest drops that the market has ever seen. And I'm like, hey, Thanks, guy I don't know. Have a nice day. And then a month later, we bought our dream home. We like bought the home of our dreams. We're like, this is great. We moved in and it was Christmas. And three months later, this thing happened in 07 where the market completely dropped out. And we became quickly upside down on our house. All of our life savings was all in its negative bracket. We're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? If I would have listened to this dude things would have been really, really different. And yet they weren't. And you say, well, why do I bring that up? Well, I'm going to get to that in a second. But here's the thing. Knowledge can exist without wisdom. But wisdom is always connected to some kind of knowledge. Information can be consumed. We're a consuming group of people when it comes to information. But we can also have it do absolutely nothing in our lives. It's a theme that James has been building over and over again as we've been walking through this section of Scripture is that we have the idea of faith and works and faith in our words and hearing and doing. And he's saying that all these things that are coming into our life when it comes to our faith, that something is going to flow out of it. If you live this way, if you believe this thing, there will be a response, that there will always be an action and a response to what we believe. And he's been hammering that over and over over again. And as he speaks about knowledge 
and wisdom, he wants us to have that similar thread going through our eyes. So here's what I want to do. I want to open up to James chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18 today. Uh, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible at all, we have Bibles that are brand new underneath the seats. You are more than welcome to use that and keep that as a gift that we would love to give to you so you would have a copy of God's Word, probably the most important thing you will ever have in your entire life. So with that, let's go ahead and read God's Word. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll just jump into this section of Scripture. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time where we can come together, we can gather, that we can sit under your word. We don't want to sit under my words, Lord. We want to sit under your words. And as we continue to open your word and explore what you would have for us, I ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear the truth of who you are. As we explore knowledge and understanding and wisdom, that we would understand where that comes from and that there are two places that we can be pulling those from but that you would guide us to submitting to your knowledge, that we would live a life that would reflect who you are. Convict us where you need to convict us. Let us exalt you where we need to exalt you. And may you work amongst the people that are here this morning. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So James does this thing, and he starts off again with a question. He always starts off with these questions in these sections. And he's really saying, I want to ask you a question because I want you to pause and I want you to think. I want you to chew on what I'm just saying, and you wouldn't just gloss over it. As a matter of fact, anytime you read your Bible and you see that there's a question posed to a group of people, we want to go, how does that affect me? I should be thinking about that question. That question is actually maybe what God is asking me right now in this moment because God's word is living and active. That it isn't some dead, old, stale book that's just over, but it continually lives and brings the truth of God to those that would hear it. And so we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak when these questions are asked. And the question is laying the foundation for the subject that he keeps connecting to these men and women, that he desires deeply out of a love for them, that they would live a life that reflects the faith that they claim in every aspect of their life. I was asked this week, what's your goal as a pastor, Simon? I'm like, that's a great question. And I remember saying, it's that you would know Jesus more, that you would worship him more fully, and that you would submit to him. That's all I want for you. I want you to live a life that shows the world that you have been transformed by Jesus and his power. Everything else we can figure out, okay? But that's what I want for you. That's what I desire for you. That's what I pray for all of you. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to attack wisdom 
and what we do with knowledge. So my first point is this, who is wise and what is wisdom? Who is wise and who has knowledge or understanding among you is the question that James brings to the table. So we have to ask the question, what is understanding and what is knowledge? Those words can be used in either way. Now, this isn't really a complicated question. It's not super difficult. That's not really hard. But knowledge is just uh, possessing information about a given subject or having truth about something. That's, that's really what it is at the end of the day. Now, it's crazy. We live in a day and an age where we have an unlimited amount of knowledge and information and resources at our fingertips and in our pockets. It's not uncommon at the Price household that someone will make a bold, outlandish statement and then everyone whips out their phone to fact check that person. And they're very quick and bold to say, you are wrong. And then someone has to stand corrected in that moment. Way too much does that happen. But I love that like, we have this, right? When I was a kid growing up, that didn't exist. You had to have one of two things, a library or an Encyclopedia Britannica. If you didn't have either one of those, there was no fact-checking going on. And somebody like, what's an encyclopedia? It's your phone, like 40 times larger, with limited information in it that's outdated. It's the year they put it out. That's really what it is. But we have so much knowledge now. Have you even noticed that it, it actually matters who you uh, quote as your source? There are different sources that are better than others, so you may be able to bring some kind of fact, but if it's not at the right standard, that fact doesn't even matter. And that's where we are today, that we have so much knowledge, that we have so much information, that we've learned so much. But it's interesting, as we learn this, as if knowledge is having truth about any given subject, we need to start asking, where is it coming from? What is it, and why is it different than wisdom? So what is wisdom? What, what, what makes, what does it mean to be wise? See, wisdom is, is very different than knowledge. It's more than just knowledge. It, it, it moves past the idea of just knowing. See, wisdom is knowledge applied to the life of the one that has that knowledge. Let me say that again. Wisdom is knowledge applied to the life of the one who has that knowledge. That, that you just don't have the knowledge, but that knowledge then affects you in some way that causes you to do something, to act in a sense. Now, let's go back to my story and play it out a little bit differently. Let's say the wisdom that I was given, the knowledge I was given about the market that was going to crash, and I say, that is good information. I am now going to apply that to my life. I'm going to keep renting this home. I'm going to wait. When the market's going to crash, here's the crazy part. When the market crashed, there was a point where we could have bought our dream home outright with the down payment that we put down. Outright. <laughs> I could have bought two homes. It would have been fantastic. I could have started my own little slumlord. I could have been like this it's the empire I could have made. And you would have looked at me and said, Simon... You are so wise with finances. You are so brilliant in what you did. But no one's saying that right now. No one's saying that at all because that's not what happened. Because if I would have applied that knowledge to my life, it would have been counted as wisdom in that moment, wouldn't it? See, it moves us to something. 
And James is pointing at this fact to these individuals that he's writing to the early church, has this knowledge of God, has this knowledge of the gospel, has what Jesus has done on the cross for you transformed your life? Has it changed you to start living in a different way than you once did? Or is your life just looking at information and doing nothing with it? It'd be very similar if I was driving down the street and we have information coming at us all the time. We call them traffic lights. And I can look at that light and go, ah, that light is red. Oh, well. And if I drive through that light without applying that wisdom to my life, people are going to die. Like, it's not safe, but that's what he's saying. Like, you're doing the same thing. As you take in the knowledge of who God is and you don't apply it to your life, you're like a guy driving in his car recklessly, not paying attention to all the information that's been given to you to keep you safe and out of harm. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, in uh, Matthew 13, 44 through 46, he says this, talking about the idea of wisdom and, and living that out. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's he saying? There is this thing that you have found that is so important and is so good and is so life transforming that you are going to change everything about your life to do that. He's like, I'm going to sell all my possessions. I'm going to buy that field. Why? Because I know what's really there, that there is a bottomless pit of wealth connected to that. Or that all the things that I have are worthless compared to this one great pearl. So I will cast all of those aside and I will hold to the one that actually has the ultimate value. That's what he's saying in those moments. That's what he's trying to communicate. And this is why he says, let your wisdom, let our wisdom be shown through our conduct, how we handle himself. What's he saying? If you claim to love Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, prove it by how you live. Prove it by applying the knowledge of the, the ultimate smartest being in the entire universe to your life. That's what he's saying. And he tells us that the key to all of this is weird, this is weird, is meekness. He's like, that's the key, everyone. Like, wait, what? Now, some of you may not like the word meekness. You know why? Because it rhymes with weakness. <laughs> and you're like, I'm not weak. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be seen as weak. I'm strong, I'm powerful, I'm bold. We, and that's like every commercial that we have right now. Like, be bold, be powerful, be strong. Okay, cool. But we don't want to be weak. Weak is bad. And, and here's the thing. If you start to look at the word weak, you can take one of two definitions. There's the world's definition of meekness, and the Bible actually has a different definition. So I want to look at the definitions today so we would understand what it says. So the dictionary, Webster, not the guy, you know, in the TV show, but the guy who wrote the, the dictionary, they would say this, uh, docile, overly compliant, spiritless, Yielding uh, or tame, as mild, deficient in courage, submissive and weak. Boy, I want that in my life. I want to be. I want to be that guy. See, the Bible has a very different definition of that. And so, when it says meekness, uh, a way that it translates is gentleness, acting in a manner that is gentle, mild, and even-tempered. 
Those sound a little bit more desirable in a life, right? Do you want to be more gentle with people? Would you like to be less harsh with individuals that you run into? Would you like to have an even temper and not fly off the handle all the time? Would you like that in your life? Because that sounds better, but I would say the definition that I like the most that resonates with me is strength under control. Strength, strength that is under control. What, what, Jesus refers to himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 as gentle or meek. Now, we have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus spoke the world into existence. He has power. When he was on the earth, he did a lot of really crazy things. Like, he's like, hey, I can walk on water because I'm God. Hey, I can calm the seas because uh, they know my voice and they submit to me because I'm God. Uh, I can cast out demons because, well, they submit to me and I have power and authority over demons. He even goes and says, uh, I, I'm, I'm so powerful, I can actually have power over death. So uh, you rise from the dead, you rise from the dead. I can do that. That's Jesus. And yet when he goes to get arrested in the garden... Peter, you know, because, you know, he's like all of us. He's like, I'll save you, Jesus. And he, <laughs> that's how I envisioned the, the moment going down. And he like whips out a sword. He's like, ah, and he chops off some dude's ear. It's like, you're not even good at like using a sword, man. You missed the whole vital connection. And he just took an ear off. And then Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, stop it. And then what does he say? Do you not know that I could call down 10 legions of angels? And that sounds like a lot. And they could have stopped these guards at any given moment. But he didn't. All that strength was under control in that moment. Why? Because he had the knowledge of the plan of God to save humanity, that he would go to the cross, that he would die in our place, that he would take the wrath that we deserved that he would give us his righteousness so we could be at peace with God. The knowledge of the plan allowed him to act in a way to where he held back his power so he could do what God was ultimately going to do to save the world so you and I could be saved so we could sit here today. That meekness has yielded this fruit. Amen? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. A.W. Tozer says this. I love this quote. Jesus calls us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. I don't care who's more powerful than me. I'm not here to impress man. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. He knows his position. She knows her position and who she is as a child of the Most High God. And the people's opinions of the world do not matter. So now he's going to talk about these two different kinds of wisdom that are going to pour out. And James is going to build this idea. He's going to start with the two wisdoms that we would understand. That there's some things that come in. I want you to kind of like track as we go through it. That there is going to be a source where this wisdom comes from. There's going to be an outcome in the life of the person who's living out of that. And there's going to be an effect on the world around you, right? So there's a source, there's a personal outcome, and there's an effect on the world around you. And those three things are going to play out in both of his things that he breaks down. And we're going to see that one is going to be worldly wisdom and one is going to be heavenly wisdom. What are the differences? Let's start with earthly wisdom. 
following the theme of that we know what drives James, what he's getting at, he's laying these things out, that there are two ways that we can see it play out. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. All right, let's, let's talk about earthly wisdom. So when we talk about earthly wisdom, we are talking about what the world says is good, what the world says is right, what the world says is how you should live, the moral compass that the world gives you. And by the way, it changes about every hour on what you should and shouldn't do, doesn't it? It seems like lately you can't, even when you think you're right, you're already wrong because you're five minutes behind what's already new. Like that's... That's what's happening with worldly wisdom. We, we can't keep up because it's always changing. It's based on feelings and circumstances, and it's, really it's based on us. We're the ones who determine that as society. And so he's saying that is the earthly wisdom we talk about. And the things that we see that come out of it are, one, bitter jealousy. This is a two-part word. The first part, bitter, means to great hostility or animosity. That's what that first part means. And the second part is jealousy, a greedy or prideful longing for something that belongs to another even something intangible, such as a skill. Meaning this, you are hostile that you have animosity towards somebody who has something that you don't have, whether it's something tangible that they possess or it's something intangible like a personal trait or quality of that individual. Money, looks, power, significant other, family, positions, skills, intelligent, physical ability, charisma, humor, wit, social skills, you name it. Like, it could be any of those things, right? Like, I always find it funny to be like, I'm jealous of that guy. Why? He's tall. How are you going to change that? <laughs> I mean, I guess they have surgeries, but I'm not willing to take that one. So, it's, it's not like, it's not only you want what they have, but you dislike them because they have what you don't have. One might even say, you might hate them, and every time you see them, it stirs up this frustration and rage and anxiety in your life. You see them like, I just can't stand to be around that guy. He's just too nice. He's just too good looking. She's just too pretty. He's just too wealthy. He's too successful. Everything he touches turns to gold. Can't stand that guy. What's he done to you? Nothing. Why are you so mad at him? Because what we want, that jealousy is like, I want their accolade. I want their attention. I want their honor. I want to be lifted high. I want to be made much of. I want to see as powerful or attractive or smart or funny. You, you put it whatever you want to put in there. You want that for yourself. That's about you getting some kind of glory. And we become angry when we see it in others. Why? Because it highlights our brokenness and deficiencies in our own life, doesn't it? Um, there's, a, there's a new Netflix series on, and I'm just trying to pace myself because I want to watch it all in one sitting. It's called Full Swing, and it basically follows the lives of all these like, really famous and wealthy golf stars, and just kind of like what they deal with, the psychological things that are involved with it. It's a fantastic show, um, and it opens your eyes to like what's going on in the world. But there's this one that we watched last night, and there's this guy, I'm not going to name him because it's not important, but he was doing really well, and now he's not doing really well. And he's not making money and he's not making the cut. He's not getting paid on these tournaments. And all he can do is focus on the guy who showed up around the same time he did, who's now winning all the stuff. Who's getting the money that he thinks he deserves. And the more he thinks about, it's funny, he just can't stop talking about him. Well, I wonder what he's doing. I wonder how, how's he doing. Like, I could be there as well. And he just thinks about him and he's got this like, 
downward spiral of thinking. The more he thinks about him, the worse he plays. Because he wants what he has so bad because he had it at one point, but it's failed him and it's broken. Let me, let me, uh, you guys remember Mad Libs? They're the best. Like you fill in the blank. You, you, you write in an adjective or a verb or, you know, a noun or a pronoun, and I always got those wrong, and I would just say a potty talk word and I'd just laugh. So let's do a, a Mad Lib this morning. So if I could just have blank, I would be blank. You're like, I don't like this game, Simon. This isn't a fun game at all. <laughs> you just made me think about all the idols in my life, didn't you? I did. Zing, zing, I got you. But think about that. Ask that question. If I could just have blank, my life would be blank. If I could just have money, my life would be easy. If I could just get that position, I'd be seen as important. If I could just get that grade, I could pass this class and my, 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 my fellow students would think that I'm smart. If I could just know more about theology, then my life would look like I'm really spiritual or religious. If I could just be pretty, then people would think that I had value. See, in these moments when we ask these questions, what you truly care about most will always come to the surface. It's a hard question that we must ask all the time. Is there something that you yearn for? And you know what's funny? You don't have to work hard because it's already in the forefront of your mind because you're already thinking about it. Is there someone that has something that you desire that you're jealous of? Someone that you find yourself being frustrated with because they have something that you want? Because here's the thing. Do you think that if you got that thing, that your life would truly then be better? Let me, let me just give you a spoiler. No, it wouldn't. Because there's something next that someone's better and someone can do something more and you will still be wanting the same thing and then you get caught in this vicious cycle. That leads us to the next thing, selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? It's a strong drive for personal success without moral inhibitions. What does that mean? I'm willing to succeed and do whatever it takes to get what I want. It doesn't matter who I have to step on, what corners I have to cut, who I have to hurt, who I have to lie to. Oh, I'm sorry, you don't lie. Who I have to stretch the truth to, who I have to bend the truth, who I need to withhold certain information from to get the things that I want. Because here's what it's about. What's it about? It's all about you, isn't it? It's all about your world. Like, if you can step back and start looking at these different outcomes, this, like, idea, it's, it revolves around something, doesn't it? The individual. It's all about that person. It's not about the body. It's not about the community. I mean, what is James writing about? He's writing to these men and women who are in these communities that are spread out all over the area. This is the early church. This is the first 10-ish years or so of the church. It's fragile. And he's like, you are breaking community. If all you can do is be focused on yourself, the community breaks down. No one's helping other people. You're just self-seeking. We don't like selfish people, right? Unless we're talking about us, but it's okay for us to be selfish. But no one else can. That's like the epitome of being selfish. This way of thinking, this way of acting, 
The Bible says in verse 15 what it is. It says that it's not from God and it's demonic. You're like, say what? It's demonic. What does that mean? It means that it's a spirit of rebellion against the things of God. It's saying, God, you are wrong. God, you are not right. That you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm going to do what I want to do because it's about me. This was the spirit of rebellion that took place in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't like, I just like fruit. I, that, it seems good. That's not what it was about. It was, I believe if I eat this fruit, it will make me like God and I can be my own God and then I can be in control and I can be in charge of my whole life and I don't need that guy. That's what that was about. That's why it was demonic. And it says it's unspiritual. What does that mean? That it's not eternal, that it's fleeting, that it won't last. These things that we think will bring us joy and happiness and hope, they're not going to last. Going back to that, that, that show, this guy was realizing, I can't do good at golf. I'm not making money. Everything that I have put my hope in, which is my ability and my talent, is failing. And when that fails, then I don't have money and I don't have the house and I don't have the things that I want. And he's scrambling because like, what do I have to do to get to that position that I once was? Because his idol was failing him. It was unspiritual. It was temporal. It can't last. It doesn't have the ability to last. And what we see is this way of living, when it exists this way, it has an outcome on society. It says it's full of disorder and vile practices or evil. That's the outcome when, when you are about yourself. When everyone's out for them, no one wins. When you are the center of the world, you will act accordingly. So I lived in Seattle uh, during the pandemic, during the riots, during a lot of crazy stuff. And there was this thing that happened called the Chop Chaz. The Chop Chaz was this social experiment where people said the government isn't working and the cops are all evil. And so we're going to overtake these three blocks in Seattle and we're going to call it the Chop the Chaz, the Autonomous Zone, and we're going to live in harmony. The mayor thought it was a fantastic fantastic idea and said it's going to be the summer of love and so that was about 10 minutes from my church so I said well let's go see what this utopia looks like so we jumped in a car we drove there and it got scarier and scarier the closer we got to it and then I got in there and it was like there was this weird thing it was this tourist attraction so uh they overtook the precinct of the police department it was all spray painted it was covered up um there was hate words everywhere. There was the being okay with um, anarchy, disruption, destruction. It looks like a beautiful place to visit, someplace you want a summer home. That's kind of what, it, but this is what happens. When left to our own devices, we see that all the selfishness of all these individuals started to bubble up, didn't it? And this, well, it's about them. And so what happened is it wasn't working because one person hated this thing and they wanted to complain about this thing, but another person wanted to complain about this thing and had their issue that they were trying to deal with and everyone was about their own stuff. There was no order. I watched people try to build a, a cornfield in a baseball field. It was the most pathetic thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Nothing grew. There was all sorts of just sexual depravity and nakedness going on and people that were there were just there as tourists to see what's happening. You know how long it lasted? Three weeks. The utopia lasted three weeks. And within that time, there was multiple murders. 
to the point where people were being shot and they wouldn't even let the EMTs in to help those that were injured because they were a part of the problem. There was a number of rapes that took place in that area. And eventually they had to come in with bulldozers and pull everything out because it was out of control. This is what James is talking about, is that disorder will come when we live out of the worldly wisdom and about self. But he says there's another way. There's a heavenly wisdom. There's a different kind of wisdom that comes from a different place with different actions and different outcomes. A wisdom that is pure, meaning what? That is without fault. It's not defiled by sin. It comes from a pure source. When this wisdom is lived out, it says that there are things that are going to flow out of the life of the individual who lives out of this kind of wisdom. Well, what is it? It's being peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, producing good fruits, impartial, sincere. Those are the things that come from this kind of knowledge that comes from God. This way of living, it looks like something, doesn't it? Well, as I look at it, I see something. It looks like how Jesus lived, doesn't it? It looks a lot about what Jesus did. Jesus came and he made peace with us, didn't he? We were at war with God and rebellion to God. And Jesus brought peace by taking our place, becoming our substitution, dying for us so we would not be at war with God, so the wrath of God would be absorbed. He was gentle. He was not harsh. He could have come in and been like, you're all sinners. You all deserve this. He could have come in hard and heavy handed. But he didn't, did he? He came in with love and kindness and gentleness and respect of others. He got down at the level of those that were marginalized, that couldn't do anything for themselves, and he showed the character trait of God's love incarnate, what it looks like to live this way. He showed us mercy. We did not get what we deserved. We, we earned in our rebellion against God, his wrath. Like, and that, was, that would be just. But he didn't. Like, why would he die for us? Why would he go to the cross for us? Because he knows that you can't save yourself. You're, un, you're, you're unable to produce any kind of righteousness. You can't pay the penalty for your sins. Jesus did that for you because he loves you. Because he cares for you. Who did he die for? The whole world. He wasn't impartial. He came for the whole world. People listened to him because when he spoke, he spoke with such sincerity. Like he's just, What he's saying is true. He's not hypocritical. He's honest with what he's saying, that there is truth behind his words. He offers that to anyone that would call on his name. I love that when we look at this picture, no one is too far gone from God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It doesn't matter where you've come from. He loves you. He died for you. He put his life on the cross so you could have life if you call on his name for salvation. Anyone. And the outcome of being under this kind of wisdom, this kind of the fruit of the Spirit, it leads to something. 
I wasn't going to share this, but I'm going to. I just want to read this because there's key words that James is using that are connected to another great message that was proclaimed. In Matthew 5, 2 through 10, it's the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to some of the key words of what James is saying and what's being highlighted in here. He's saying the same thing. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We call these the Beatitudes, and it is the attitude of how we should be as Christians. He's saying that if you follow me, if you love me, your life will look radically different from the world's. See, James and Jesus are saying the exact same thing, which is why he's mirroring so many of Jesus' sermons. See, the outcome of godly wisdom is something we see, it starts to pour out of unity. That's what we start to see is unity within the community of believers. It's not about the one, it's about the body and helping others grow and thrive. I don't know if you've been watching the news or been watching what's going on in Kentucky. Uh, there's a college, and uh, there's Osbury College out there in Kentucky, and they started a chapel and they just didn't stop. It's been what, 11, 12 days, something crazy like that? 24 hours. They are singing they are worshiping God. They are on their hands and knees crying for God to reach others. They're meeting the needs in people's lives. They're sitting under scripture and reading. People are flying in from all over the United States and all over the world. And they say it's, there's a line that's like hours long just to try to get into the building and to praise and worship Jesus. And now it's starting to spread to other college campuses. Now, I don't know what the ultimate outcome of this is going to be, and there's a lot of speculation, but I know this. There's a lot of movement with young people right now. Why? They have lived in an environment of being polarized, of hate, of brokenness. They are seeing that this world is in a very difficult spot. And they read what this says, and they say, we want to see that. We're not seeing this in the world. There's got to be something more than what we're seeing in these churches. That if God is all-powerful and transforms lives and changes people, we want to see that. And so they're yearning and pleading to see if God is really who he is. God, move amongst us. Show us your power and transform this world so we can see you move. We want to see God. And I'm excited about that. Just when we think we can give up hope on what's going on, God's like, no, I've got a plan. And it won't be thwarted by anyone. Call out to me. Call on my name. And watch me move amongst my people. When we live a life of peace that's under the knowledge of God, we lived, it says that we live a peaceful life. We sow seeds of peace. And that there is a harvest like a farmer. That as we are agents of peace, we get to sow peace in this world. And righteousness will be the crop that's coming. 
being right with God, showing what it looks like to live in harmony with the God of the universe because we have been forgiven of our sins. We need to understand that God's wisdom is always about relationship. Either vertically between he and us or horizontally between us and others. Those things are always working in conjunction together. You can't have one without the other. He says, if you're going to love me and be connected to me, you will love what I love, and he loves his people. And so James is saying that we need to love this community. We need to be embraced in this community. People under God's word build relationships. We don't tear them down. We reflect the love of God through the love of his children to a broken and lost world. I love that the Bible says that we are a city set on a hill, that we are a lamp that sits on a stand for all to see, that there is something about how we live our lives that shows a dark world what it looks like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be changed by God, to be saved by grace, and it draws people in to see the truth of who he is. And I don't know where everyone is today. But there is something that God is doing. Either he is drawing you into that light and that's why you're here today or he is calling you to be a light and to go out into that world and to start living in a way. Prove that you love me. Show that. Live a life that reflects me. That's what he's saying. It's not that it earns your salvation. You're just showing the world who you are. And I gotta ask the question, where in your life do you need to submit to the wisdom of God, Christian? Where are you bringing in God's word into your life and just letting it sit there being docile where do you need to believe it and have wisdom and live it out he'll tell you ask press into God say God I don't know where, where am I falling short where am I not engaging you where am I not loving you the way I should? where am I not trusting you he will answer you he will always answer you because he's a good and loving and kind God who wants us to grow But I guess the other question is, where are you finding your wisdom? Where are you finding the knowledge? Are you looking to the world? Are you looking to God? We're going to have some great questions this week in our life groups where you can engage those things and we can kind of dive into that more. But I encourage you, right now, I'm going to pray. I just want you to close your eyes, I want you to bow your heads, and I want you to spend some time talking with God. And we're going to take communion in a second. So I'm going to pray. And let's just kind of move into a time of reflection and engagement of God. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for letting us know that there are two kinds of wisdom. And one is from you and one is not. One leads to disorder and destruction. And one leads to peace and righteousness. Lord, we want to be connected to you and your wisdom. Fill us with the Holy Spirit to live that life that we can't live on our own. Lord, where we have jealousy of others, where we are looking for idols in our life, I ask that you would bring those to our minds so we could throw them down at the foot of the cross. That we would stop being about self and we'd start being about what you are about. We want to be about relationships and community and pulling people together so people would see what your body looks like, how we look so different from the rest of the world. Let us reject the knowledge that we've woven into our lives that we think is really wise but is fleeting and changing every day. 
but you are constant and steady, that your word is unchanging. You are unchanging because you are right in all ways. You don't need to change because you were right the first time. Lord, work amongst your people. Convict the way you need to convict. I pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.